0: Welcome to the Weekend University podcast, and this is your host, Niall McKeever. The Weekend University was set up to make the best psychology lectures available to the general public. To do this, we organise lecture days once per month, where attendees get a full day of talks from the UK's leading psychologists, authors, and university professors. Our podcast features in-depth interviews with our speakers, so you can learn more about their work. To keep updated on upcoming events and new lectures, you can sign up for the mailing list at theweekenduniversity.com. This episode features a lecture from Professor Bruce Hood on the self-illusion, why there's no you inside your head. The lecture was recorded at our March 2018 event, which focused on the science, psychology and philosophy of the self. Bruce is the Professor of Developmental Psychology in the School of Experimental Psychology at the University of Bristol. He's been a research Fellow at Cambridge University and UCL, a visiting scientist at MIT, and a faculty professor at Harvard. He has been awarded an Alfred Sloan Fellowship in Neuroscience, the Young Investigator Award from the International Society of Infancy Researchers, the Robert Fance Memorial Award, and voted to fellowship status by the Society of American Psychological Science. Bruce is also the founder of SpeakEasy, the world's largest database of expert speakers. SpeakEasy aims to help speakers engage with their audience and to make it easier for organizers to find relevant experts to talk at their event, whatever the size. You can check out their website at www.speakeasy.org. Enjoy the show!
1: Thanks. Great. Thank you. Thank you much. Uh, I, uh, I arrived in the halfway through Kevin's talk, and what struck me is what a great audience. Because I don't know, uh, as an academic, when we speak to undergraduates, they're generally not that interested in anything we have to say. So this is, really, this is really interesting to find an engaged audience. Now, please feel free to stop interrupt and say, what the hell are you talking about if I say something? Um, I, tend, I could talk for hours, and I know we haven't got hours to do so, but I'm just going to keep going until I see you're nodding off or leaving, and, and then we'll draw to a cl- conclusion. But at the end of it, uh, I'd like to have a panel um, with Jules and Kevin, uh, at least to cover some of the points, because there's clearly some of the things that Kevin was saying, and there was a question about the hypothalamus there earlier on. I think there's a lot of interesting overlap, so hopefully what I can do is... Uh, provide some bridges or synergies, whatever word you like to use. My background training, as I was pointing out, is, is in neuroscience, but I am really interested in those sorts of deeper questions about what makes us human. So for me, the answer to that question is understanding development. And so a lot of what I'm going to be talking about is about child development today. Even though the notion or the, the, the topic is really on the self, which uh, is... This is, this is my Marmite talk. Whenever I give this talk, people either really love it because of the implications, or they really hate it. Um, I wrote a book um, called The Self-Illusion. That was my second one. This is now six years old. And it still sells very well. And the reason I think it sells well is it really annoys people. So it's controversial because it either makes you feel a little bit better about your life and the decisions you make, or um, it, it just angers you, and I get lots of emails from really disgruntled people. Not just members of the general public; academics, uh, colleagues they're dislike idiots. this. Sorry, say again. They're, they're idiots. idiots. Oh, that's, well, thank they're you. Idiots. It? Envious. Envious. Oh, envious. I thought they're idiots as well, but I'll take, <laughs> I'll take, I'll take envious as well. Um, no, I, I think the point is that, that, that uh, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what I'm saying when I say the self is an illusion, because people think illusion means there's nothing there. Well, no, the, the word illusion means it's not what it seems. And so I am not denying that we all have this compelling experience of the self. You, I hope you're having it, because I'm having it. Um, but what I think it is, and what it appears to me as this sort uh, of integrated, coherent individual with free will and, and is, is actually illusory. That's what I'm going to argue. It's not what it seems. So, I would imagine that most of us have this sort of sense of self. Um, you know, this is a, this is my colleague Paul Bloom from Yate, and he says that you know when we think about ourselves, we don't just feel different to our bodies. We we occupy them. We possess them. I certainly feel like, You know, I've just decided I'm going to pick up that bottle of water. My mind made that decision. I I enacted it, and I've done it. Therefore, I feel like this little puppet control master inside this complicated machine called the body. Uh, but this, of course, is classically mind-body dualism. Descartes, as you will remember, spent hours sitting in front of his fire in his isolated cottage contemplating what's the nature of consciousness and realizing that he couldn't trust any of his senses. And he finally came to the conclusion, the only thing I can really be certain about is the fact that I'm having these thoughts. Hence ergo quignito, ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. But this led him to the, to the conclusion that the mind must be separate to the body. So that, hence, this is why we call it dualism. But the trouble with that is that certainly there's some logical issues we could consider there, but there's a hell of a lot of uh, empirical evidence which indicates that the mind is a product of the brain. If you damage the brain through disease or drugs or hitting it with a hammer, the mind is correspondingly changed. I cannot explain how the mind has been created. I'm not going to answer the hard problem of consciousness here, so people are going to leave now. I don't, I don't actually have the answer to that, but we do know that the mind is, is fundamentally dependent on the brain. Now, I want to just ask you a question. Why do we need a brain? Would anyone like to hazard a guess? To think.
0: To keep up, to, to help our body to survive. Yeah,
1: think, keeping you alive, thinking. Uh, these are all good answers, and they're all correct. But it's not entirely the reason. The reason we have brains is because we need to move. It's Sorry? It's growing. It's growing, yes, the brain's growing. But there are many living things which don't think. There are many living things which don't have brains. Uh, think about the plant world. Think about amoebas. Think about very simple organisms. Brains evolved as a way of processing the external world and then interpreting that and generating internal models so that you can navigate around the world. And I I draw your attention to this really peculiar and interesting creature called the sea squirt. Now, the sea squirt has a really fascinating life cycle. It starts off like a little tadpole with a very simple brain and a very simple visual system. So it navigates along the bottom of the ocean until it finds a nice rock. And then it attaches itself to the rock and then undergoes a metamorphosis where it absorbs its brain. Brains are metabolically very hungry things. And so it gets rid of its brain because it doesn't need to navigate anymore. A bit, a bit like you know, professors when they get tenure. They don't need to think anymore, so they don't <laughs> need the brains. So brains really are a way of navigating around the world, moving around the world, as you said, trying to build up plans and models of that world to anticipate the world around you. And of course, the world that you experience depends on the brain that you have. For example, to a human, the buttercup is a beautiful yellow flower. To a bee, which has a different brain, if you like, a different central nervous system, that's what buttercups look to bees. We can't know what it's like to think like a bee, because that's the old problem of how can it think like an animal. But we know that they're registering information at the ultraviolet level. So what we see around the world is really constrained by the brain that we have. Sir? What's the definition of a brain? I've never thought about that. When you
0: its variety, what's the
1: most primitive <coughs> okay, Well, central nervous system is, is what I prefer to use, but brain is the common, term, uh, uh, the common language. The central nervous system, of course, extends right throughout the body. Wherever there's senses, it comes together. It's a process. In the human, we happen to have this, this thing. Um, can we get the lights down a little just to make these images? They're really cool. Um, is, there a, is there a way to just uh, lighten the room? Oh, you need it for the camera, do you? OK. Um. So people talk about the brain and the stomach. You know, the gut brain, have you heard that as well? Uh, I mean, I don't want to go there because there's a lot of uh, argument about what that is, but certainly the central nervous system is spread throughout the body. So all the information coming in through the senses is, is transduced into electrical chemical impulses, which is then registered. In terms of where information is stored, yeah, there's information stored in your gut, there's information stored in your heart, but really the, the sorts of information that we think about in terms of cognition, primarily in the cerebellum okay, which is what we would regard as as a brain. The cerebellum, the cortex. Uh, I'll show you a little bit, I'll I'll show you some images which are kind of cool images, but that's what we mean by a brain. So, I forgot what I was going to say next, but let's see, okay. In many ways, our brains process the external world and uh, create simulations of it. And it creates models of the external world in order that we can navigate the world. But we also have a multitude of information inside our heads in terms of the processes which we act upon. I I think it generates internal models. And to cut to the chase, I'm going to argue the self is an internalized summary of information that we use to interface with the complexity of the parallel world. Okay? Think about it. The world out there is full of vast amounts of parallel information. We've got vast amounts of parallel information inside, but somehow we need to interact. We don't interact as multitudes. I don't interact with this lady and then try and understand everything about her history. Rather, I summarize, categorize, and make certain assumptions. She feeds me back certain information, and then we have this kind of very useful, convenient way of interacting. I think in many ways, the, sum of the self is that characterization, that narrative, that, that, uh, that summary of the vast multitude of influences. So I can go home now, I've just told you it, but no. <laughs> How do we get the self? Well, oh, I wanted to just, I wanted to make a real, this, I love this. This is, I wanted to come back to the issue about what, what do I mean by the word illusion? As I said before, it's not what it seems. Now, illusions are fascinating, they're quirky, and, and psychologists love to show them because they're, they're, they're fascinating. But they also reveal fundamentals which are incredibly important. So for example, this is the Kanizsa illusion. You should all be seeing the white square over the four dark uh, circles. But of course, as you're probably aware, it's a subjective contour. There's nothing there. It's all in your mind. So if I take these away, the square disappears. Whoops. I think this is a metaphor for the self. The self emerges out of the, it's an emergent property of the context, of the complexity of everything which is creating it. I'll be coming back to that point. at are various issues. But here, here's something very cool. Within your brain, the visual processing areas at the back, you have cells, neurons which fire in response to external stimulation. You have sets of cells which fire to edges of real squares. But the same cells, assemblies of cells which fire to the edges of real squares, also fire to the illusory edges of the imagined square. The brain assumes that the only way that you can have this configuration is if there's a real square out there so it back propagates, back propagates information down to the visual areas and says, fire as if there's a real square there. The brain is literally hallucinating its own experience. It can't tell the difference between reality and imagination. It's kind of cool, isn't it? <laughs> OK, uh, let's do a few more illusions because they're just fun. Only because I think they reveal to you the sense to which your experiences are constructed. So here's an auditory visual illusion, the McGurk. I'm sure most of you have seen it. If you don't know it, it's, it's really compelling. Uh, I want you to watch the man and tell me, tell me what you think he's saying. Not much, because there's no sound.
0: Ba-ba, ba-ba, ba-ba.
1: Hands up over here, da-da, da-da, da-da. OK, good. Right, I want you to do it again, but this time, close your eyes and listen.
0: Ba-ba, ba-ba, ba-ba.
1: Hands up if you heard ba-ba, ba-ba, ba-ba. Good, you've all got perfect hearing. He is actually saying ba-ba. You have no direct contact with reality. Your brain is just generating those experiences. And when it's given this conflicting information, he actually is saying ba, but we've superimposed the shape of ga. Brain's going, "I'm, I'm seeing ga, but I'm hearing ba. It must be da. So your brain is constantly creating your experiences. You're, you're looking at me now and saying, oh, I can see the world perfectly well in a lot of detail. In fact, that's an illusion as well. You're only processing an area about the size of your thumb. You say, what, you, what do you mean I'm, I can see everything? No, you can't, because your brain is just creating that. It's picking up the images, and knitting it together into a complex pattern. You have no color vision in the periphery. Okay, You've got two black holes, which correspond to the blind spots in your eye. You can't see the black holes, because your brain literally is filling in the information. Every time you move your eyes, you're blind. If you don't believe me, pull out a mirror, or go to the toilets and look in the mirror, and then move your eyes backwards and forwards and see if you can see your own eye movements. You can't. And The reason you can't is every time your eyes move, the brain literally goes blind. You're blind for about two hours of every waking day, but you would never know it. You see, the brain is remarkably clever at knitting together information, generating coherence, filling in missing information. This is what it does. And I think the self is part of this process. It's constructed. Ah, ignore that one. That's another visual illusion. I think one of the greatest illusions is the self. And what do I mean by the self? Well, I I defer to William James. Now, James is in many ways considered the father, certainly the father of Western psychology. Uh, He started the first psychology department at Harvard. Brother of, of Henry James, the author. And, and James used to talk about the self in terms of the I experience versus the me experience. Okay, so, um, sir, can I ask you a question? If I was to ask you, do you prefer chocolate or vanilla ice cream? What would you say? Chocolate. chocolate. Now, what you've done there is illustrated the two aspects of the I versus the me. Presumably, your answer is based on your past experiences of having tasted chocolate and vanilla. And so you have some representation of stored memory of which one you prefer. That's your autobiographical memory. That's your autobiography of, sorry, what's your name? Fernando. Fernando's autobiography. If you were to read it in a book later on when he becomes famous, (laughs) the time he was asked about his ice cream preferred chocolate. But he's also, sorry, Fernando, to talk you about as if you're not here. Fernando is also demonstrating the concept of consciousness in the here and now. The phenomenology of hearing a question, formulating an answer, that's the I experience. So all the, all the information is the autobiography, is the me, but all the kind of awareness that you're having now, that people feel, the compelling experience, is the I. Now, why is this an important distinction to make? Well, because I think that we're born... With a brain which already probably has the conscious awareness, I have no reason to doubt that babies are don't have the eye experience, but clearly they can't have much of an autobiography of who they are. So there must be a developmental process to the self, and that's why that's why I'm fascinated in studying children. How does this sense of identity emerge, and what shapes it through experiences? Sorry, there's a hand in the question. I was getting my, sorry. Yes. I've heard those stories, but I must be skeptical. I saw a friend of mine. Her parents had an accident on a motorbike. A mom was pregnant. And her parents, when you come for two, three
0: days, and when she was born, she had problems, and now she's getting older. Problem with her neck, spine, and everything, with her legs, and everything. So, it
1: worked on the memory, even if you were not born. Okay. Can we park that to the side for the moment? Because I can't really address that. Um, Your question?
0: Well, I wanted to ask about the last uh, slide. Yeah. The the distinction between the I and the me. Yeah. The I is the experience of consciousness. Yes. The me is my autobiography goal.
1: Yes. So when you answer that question, you have the conscious awareness of, of formulating the answer here in the question. But you obviously refer to unconscious information, which is all, well, it became... You became aware of it as you drew... That was your autobiographical memory.
0: Yeah, so I was, I was going to ask about this exercise in meditation in which you separate the observer from the personality, from the person experiencing, from the person feeling things and having internal... Uh, I hadn't thought about
1: that. I mean, it yeah, so sounds...
0: Is, is, is experiencing a consciousness about the me? Could be. In, in meditation. It's,
1: it's I'm not a meditator, but I do know that this concept of anatta comes from Buddhist medit- the, the philosophy of multiples or not being a self. does seem to resonate with that, so I presume there's some crossover there? Yeah,
0: yeah so the stream of consciousness is, is, is something that, that is, is separate from... Yeah. The,
1: yeah. yeah, and I would agree. Although that stream of consciousness, which seems to be unitary and unifying and, and single, I would, I, I'm not sure that that's the case, because you have multiple... It can be so easily perturbed.
0: We get lost in terminology because they have different meanings in
1: context. Well, hopefully you're seeing a lot of fertile ground to cover.
0: It was very interesting that that seeing these I and me as separate parts. Okay. Yeah, that was very useful,
1: yeah. All right. Should we move on? I've got a lot to get through. All right, one more. Uh, well, um, w- what is having the consciousness awareness other than the self-referential, is there a, is this, are you talking about collective, is this a Jungian type? <laughs> well, uh, in the sense that you're aware but not necessarily aware of anything, not even of the sense of being in the your body, just, there's just a sense of awareness. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that, but I will show you a slide later on, I think it's about 20 slides in, uh, <laughs> where you ask people to say, where are you now? and I'll show you where they think they are. Okay, so well, let's go. Um, by the way, this is, this is just an animation. This is not, this is, these are the, the only reason I'm showing this is because they're cool pictures, but these are, these are neurons, and, and the thing about neurons is, uh, in very general terms, information from the external world is, uh, comes in through your senses, and then it's transduced into nerve impulses that traverse these vast networks of cells with billions of connections. The point is, um, the way that information is encoded is it's stored as representations, representations of the external world. Representations are the language of the mind. So our brains, unlike many other brains, seem to have this enormous capacity for encoding vast amounts of experience. Our childhoods are proportionally the longest of any animal on the planet. Why is that? Well, because I think that in our solution nature has gone for the, the solution to encode vast amounts of interactions with other people. Okay, I think there's interactions and with, with the physical world and objects and trees and whatever, but we spend a lot of our time developing into accepted members of the tribe. And so to do that, you have to have a fairly well-established sense of who you are. And that's, again, I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's what I'm going to be saying, that development is really to... To mature, to develop a sense of self that can integrate with others in a meaningful way. Um, if you're kind of interested, this is what happens. These are brains of babies. These are the cortical neurons I told you about, and what you can see is they connect up, and this connectivity reflects experiences. Uh, experience generates more connections, but if you don't get these experiences, they atrophy away. So this leads to what we call plasticity. And sculpting where the brain is basically shaped by early experiences now this will actually get to some of the Jungian things and the Freudian stuff and all the notion about oh thanks this will this will uh, this will uh, fits with this idea that early experiences have long-term consequences um, that's true it's certainly true at the sensory level we know this from controversial experiments where you raise animals in very early environments and they're they don't see sounds, or they don't see whatever, and you can you can basically change the growth of the brain depending on the early experiences. What's true of the sensory system is true of the social systems as well. In fact, a lot of the areas in the brain, you don't need to know what these stand for, but they're, they're all processing various aspects of social interactions. So other people's faces and how they move. Uh, there are areas which are active when you're imagining what someone's thinking, so-called theory of mind. Uh, there are areas which are triggered by... Joy, guilt, shame, all the social emotions, these are areas which are also undergoing significant development over over childhood. There are areas which are basically imitating others, copying them, resonating with them, emotional contagion. All these areas have been identified in the brain, but they also undergo significant change in development, just like the sensory areas. Unlike the sensory areas, which kind of reach maturity very early on, these other areas take much longer. Well, well into adolescence and teenage years. So there's a lot to be said for this protracted period of development. The brain in many ways is a social brain and if you think about it, there are seven billion of us on this planet trying to interact. And so you do need this sophisticated, exquisitely tuned system to learn how to, to interact with others. And to do that, you've got to have a really good sense of self, I would argue. I mean, if you think about it, we gather around, we educate. If you look at what we do and what we get the most joy out of, we are a peculiar species, are we not? And certainly on a Saturday, um, <laughs> the male of the species in this country is very peculiar. Um, this is from uh, <laughs> Sarah-Jane Blakemore. So we've got Michael Owen just missing a goal for Liverpool here, and look at this peculiar behavior. You know, What's that all about? I think that itself is an interesting question. By the way, it's also seen in other primates. Uh, unless, of course, you're in the other team and you're punching, <laughs> you're punching the air. But if you were a Martian coming from another planet and looking at this behavior, what would you make of it? You know, it's not as if we're individuals, really. Actually, we're kind of, we're, we're actually kind of, you know, human meerkats, are we not? So um, we're, we're constantly, you know, modifying our behaviors. The joy that we get, um, our preoccupations are, are with other people. Uh, and, to, and that means that th- we're not the individuals that we think we are. Yes, we are physically at one level, but a lot of our preoccupation is the extent to which we are integrated with others. We uh, invest amount of, large amounts of effort and time in our young. And as I said, you know, we, we have the longest proportion of our time being dependent on others. And if you don't have that dependency, then that leads to psychopathologies. This is the famous, infamous, I should say, studies by Harry Harlow. You probably remember those studies from the 50s where he raised uh, monkeys in isolation and found that if you leave them longer than six months, they end up with permanent psychopathologies. They can't be easily reintegrated into the group. Um, and that passes on to the way they abuse their own children. So, if female monkeys are inseminated um, and they've been raised in isolation, then they abuse their children as well. Someone mentioned epigenetics earlier on. This is the same sort of issue again that there are these uh, transgenerational effects. Of abnormal behaviors, which actually probably are affecting the hypothalamic, um, you know, the cortisol systems, the stress hormones, all those sorts of things you were talking about. Okay, so we are um, a species which has uh, a preoccupation with social interactions, and you can observe it from right from the very beginning, neonates. Newborns already prefer the sounds of the human voice. They prefer faces. A lot of the, uh, this is a lot of my early work. I, I used to study newborns. My youngest subject was 17 minutes. Uh, you know, straight out of the womb. The <laughs> mother was too delirious to care what I was doing, but I was kind of studying. <laughs> um, and we were looking at all sorts of uh, you know developmental milestones. So they show early social interactions. They imitate. They copy facial expressions quite early on. They cry when they hear crying and smile and so on. And uh, we, of course, are wired to our babies. You know, If we had a baby in the room and it cried, we'd all turn and we'd all feel immediately you know, uncomfortable about that. Crying is like a biological siren. Um, so our children are really important to us. Not everyone, of course, but for the majority of our species, we invest a lot of time and effort and concern for our children. They, of course, um, have to become part of the tribe. And this is what I think is what the self is. These are some of the major milestones on the pathway to be developing the self, becoming accepted. In order to be a functional member of a tribe or group you have to sort of have a sense of who you are and how you stand in relation to other people. And That in a sense is a self, is it not? Um, so some of these, these are some of the milestones, some of them will be familiar to, self-recognition. Babies don't generally recognize themselves in the mirror until around about 18 months. If you put a baby, a, a one-year-old, in front of a mirror, they'll just laugh and point at the other baby. But an 18-month-old, uh, if they see themselves, they'll start to preen and you know, look at themselves, and they recognize and they acknowledge that the, the reflection is an image of them. Interestingly enough, this was originally an observation of Darwin at London Zoo. And it was Gordon Gallup in the 1970s who developed this te- technique called the rouge test, where he would surreptitiously put a little bit of makeup on the nose of the animal and then pluck them in front of a mirror and see how they behaved. And what he established was that a number of primates have self-recognition. So do other social animals, dolphins, elephants, animals which live in groups. So self-recognition appears to be a marker uh, for this kind of interaction. Somewhere around about the second year of life, children start to recognize they are males and females. Now, uh, of course, there's a lot of variation in between, but in general, they do fall into these two camps. And when they start to acknowledge or recognize that they are one or the other, they start to pay special attention to these differences, the categories of information which define boys versus girls. So they become what we call gender detectives. Not only are they gender detectives, but they become gender police. So if they see another child of the same gender doing something of of the opposite, they say, you can't do that. Boys can't do that, or girls can't do that. And so they start to see themselves as adopting these roles. They're starting to develop kind of in-group, out-group notions. It's true of race as well. So they start to pick up on the differences of facial features, differences of skin color. They're starting to identify themselves as being um, members of particular tribes. Theory of mind. That's a term in psychology, where you can literally take someone else's perspective. So um, for you example, I I can imagine you, I can almost try to imagine you in your position sitting and looking back at me. It's a bit of a mental effort, but I can do it. Or there's a lady smiling, so maybe she's maybe amused at me or not. But imagine if I could not read you. Imagine that if I lacked that, how difficult it would be to interact with other people. And of course, there are people like that. Who are they? Autism, autism spectrum disorder, these are all on a continuum. Some of us don't reach clinical levels, but we know individuals who just don't seem able to take other people's perspectives or they don't want to. Um, so I think this is a really important point because the sense of self and who you are is, is a intersubjectivity. It's, it's understanding the relationship that you have with other people. And if you don't take their perspective, then, you know, you're Donald Trump. <laughs> Okay, self-esteem. What are they thinking about me? You see, when you're born, you're the center of everyone's, you're the apple of your parents' lives, and and all the attention is directed at you. But when you go off to nursery school, you realize you know, there are other children. There are other children who may have the same name as you. My god, when children discover that, they find that absolutely abhorrent. And then they understand that, oh my god, I'm no longer the center of attention. So you get a lot of the tantrums at two, and you get a lot of this uh, emotional anxieties. And then when they start to understand that they're not the center of attention, they realize there's a pecking order. Then they start to get concerned, where am I in the pecking order? who, Who am I? And then this becomes the obsession, really for many people for the rest of their lives. But certainly at adolescence, this is when a lot of the anxiety is about what am I? What do I look like? Am I attractive? Who am I? And of course, we start to try and mold ourselves to fit. Well, what we perceive to be the things to aspire to. So self-esteem is an incredibly powerful motivating drive to, to establishing your identity. Self-control. We are a multitude, a multitude of drives and impulses. And if you can't regulate them, then you're going to be a very difficult person to interact with. And we all know that control is something that children have to learn. You, have you ever been in the supermarket and you see the meltdown at the aisle when the child sees the sweets at the, the checkout? They, that's why they put them at the checkout, by the way. They're not stupid, the owners of the stores. They know that this will cause, tr- and uh, you're so embarrassed, you just say, oh, take them. <laughs> you know, Because children have these temper tantrums. They can't self-control. It's partly to do with the frontal lobes, which regulate behaviors. So I'll say a little bit about that in a moment. And then finally, what we were talking about earlier, autobiographical memory. It's no coincidence that the earliest, other than the person in the motorcycle accident, that most people, when you ask them about what's the earliest memory they have, it's usually on average around two to three years of age. Below that, there's a phenomenon called infantile amnesia. People can't seem to remember anything below that. What they do remember, if anything, is typically fragmentary sensory experiences, like a bird flew through a window, or I I seem to remember a a, a park, or I seem to remember... But it's not integrated into a narrative. And, of course, if you think about it, you have to have a self as the character in that role in order to make sense of it. Once you start to see yourself in this context, and then it's much easier to remember the stories. There's some fascinating research looking at the Far East where they talk to their children and get them to reflect about their day and speak about it. So they encourage this narrative and they have earlier autobiographical memory compared to children in the West. So talking about yourself, seeing yourself in relation to others, helps you formulate those memories, those stories about who you are. OK, so let's just um, look at a couple of uh, some cool things. Imitation. a lot of people are fascinated by imitation in animals because, uh, you know, if you remember Jane Goodall's work and the, the prodding the termite hills with the, the twigs and showing that it's this is tool use, and do other younger monkeys copy it, or chimpanzees, I should say, do they copy it, or do they wash potatoes? So primatologists are fascinated by imitation because it, it seems to be evidence of a kind of a culture, and it seems to be evidence for uh, transferring knowledge. I think imitation has got a much more interesting component when it comes to humans. I'm going to show you an example of imitation in two 10-month-olds. And I want you to notice them imitating. Their father is standing over here. I think he's just sneezed. Um, and then just, just look at how they behave. And moreover, note how you behave.
0: He's my boy. Oh, please do.
1: So clearly, not a transfer of knowledge, is it? What's going on there? Does anyone want to hazard a guess? Mirror, mirroring. mirroring, yes, yes. Why would they be mirroring? Are they twins? They are twins, yes. But why do you think they're doing? Did you not notice what you felt when you watched that? Attention and. Uh, let's not go there, they're controversial. <laughs> Anyone at the back? Yes. The emotional, the emotional currency of imitation is the sim- 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 sincerest form of flattery, isn't it? When you are imitated, when a child imitates you, it immediately triggers this emotional uh, currency and valence of it. I think that's what kids are doing when they're imitating. Uh, I think they recognize that when they clown around, we just think they're the most lovable things. So I think they're manipulating us. Uh, I really think that they are being Machiavellian. Here's another example. Here, here's an example of a, um, of a child. Uh, no, the person, this is Felix Warnigan. He argues this is prosociality. I think there's something a little bit more sinister going on. So I should just say, a hapless adult can't open a door. 14-month-old. Uh, Okay? So when they see the video, they say, "Oh look babies are born to be helpful from the stock." I think babies are born to manipulate adults. And by helping what we do, as, as you, the reason I show these cute videos is precisely because they're cute videos. That's why YouTube is full of cute videos. Uh-huh. If you think about it, it's because they just seem to be sort of great. And that's because they go directly to our heartstrings by the process of imitation, mimicry, and what appears to be pro-social behavior. Now, if, what you don't know is that that only happens if the infant interacts with the adult before they're requiring help. If the adult doesn't show any reciprocity or any interest, the child doesn't do it. So the child is using helping as a way of establishing who's going to be in my tribe, who's going to help me back again. It's a strategy. And it makes a lot of sense when you think about it that you don't want to be promiscuously good to everyone. There's another phenomenon I haven't shown you called stranger anxiety. If you approach a child and they don't know who you are, they'll burst into tears from about seven months onwards. So in addition to this kind of prosociality, what you get is this intense fear of strangers. So these mechanisms are basically guiding children along a pathway of identifying who they are in relation to other people. So we start to kind of follow. a lot of the significant stereotypes, who we think we are, a lot of our identity is being shaped. I'm not suggesting we're blank slates, by the way. Anyone who's had children had more than one child, initially when they have a child, everyone thinks they can make their child be like them. And then when they have two children, they realize they have no influence whatsoever because children <laughs> have personalities. And that is largely a biological genetic kind of thing. But those personalities operate within environments. So there's a constant interplay between the genetics and the experiences. I'm not suggesting that we're completely blank and totally formulated by the experience of others, but what a lot of what we do is in response to others. Um, theory of mind. Why not? Okay. Um, theory of mind is the psychological phenomenon about imagining what uh, other people are thinking. So, sir, do you mind if I pick on you? Uh, if I was to show you a Smarties box, box and say what you think's in there, you would say. You'd say orange Smarties and you like those, okay. Now imagine I opened the box up and I showed you that there were pencils and I said, okay, so there's no Smarties in there. What did you think was in there? Chocolate. Chocolate. What's in there? You'd say pencils, okay. Now if I say, imagine that I show this to the lady and she hasn't seen what's in the box. What will she thinks in the box when I show her initially? Chocolate. Right. But you know that's not true and you know she will have a false belief. So what you've done is you've literally mentally put yourself into a position, imagined that you no longer have that knowledge. That's really difficult for a three-year-old. If I ask a three-year-old what's in there, they'll say Smarties. You show them pencils. They'll say, what did you think was in there? They'll say pencils. If I say, what will another child think, they'll say pencils. So um, they are unable to mentally understand that people can have uh, misunderstandings of false beliefs. Classic example, I think, is this one. Sorry. So I'll just show you how it works. Sally Ann Task, again, you, uh, you do these experiments where you get children to try to imagine someone else's perspective. In this case, Anne has uh, moved Sally's marble to a new location. And then you just ask her where does she think that uh, Sally will go and look for it. This is Sally. And this is Anne. Right. So Sally comes in with her marble. Sally puts her marble into the basket and goes out.
0: Right, she's out now, isn't she? Anne
1: comes and gets the marble.
0: And she puts the marble in the box. Here comes
1: Sally. Here comes Sally. Now, where will Sally look for the marble? There you go Sally! You got it for her! Hooray! And that is the classic behavior you find on failure theory of mind. It's also a task that uh, individuals with autism typically fail as well, Uh, even as adults. Remarkably, they find that very difficult. They can't easily imagine another person's perspective. Now, what has that got to do with the self? Well, think about it. If you cannot draw that intersubjectivity with another person, then you assume that they're just an extension of your own mind, which is, of course, not how you interact with other people in a very cooperative, social way. So it's a really fundamental component. of of identity. Self-control. This is a marshmallow test. I'm sure you've probably all heard about this one. But just to remind you, um, this is a a measure of what's called delay of gratification. So if I present something really tantalizing to you, I don't know, whatever it may be, Madame uh, Bouquet, maybe a box of chocolates or it could be anything. But immediately when you present people with goals, there's this urge to kind of seek out the goal because it's rewarding. But in these tasks, what Walter Michel did in the 60s, he said, look, here's a marshmallow, and children just love marshmallows. He said, if you wait, you can have two. Okay? And what he discovered was that the length of time that they can delay that gratification varies amongst children. But what's really interesting is it predicts how they behave 10 years later at school tests, how many friends they have, where they go on to become cocaine addicts at 27. Something about your capacity for suppressing urges and impulses is a very good predictor of your personality. Um, so why is that relevant to the self? Well, we, did you know that you say, I wasn't myself last night. What do you mean you weren't yourself? Oh, I, I was out of my mind. If you think, of, look at the language that we're using when we do things which don't fit with the caricature of, or the story that we'd like to maintain. We're always making excuses as if there was some other reason that something happened. When in fact, all we're demonstrating is that we are a multitude of impulses and drives, and sometimes they get the better of us. But again, it makes the assumption that there is this sort of protagonist who is not p- part of all the drives and impulses. So I think there's a logical issue about dividing the self from all the actions and behaviors and thought processes which are controlling us. Um, I think I could, you want to see a video of children having problems? Okay, so here's, uh, <laughs> all right, now, the, these, are, these are older children now, these are seven and eight-year-olds, so they can suppress the urge to eat the marshmallow, but what I want you to notice is how difficult it is for them and all the distraction techniques that they use. So it's not easy. And I think we all have that to some extent. So there's a whole area of psychology which looks at this ability to regulate and control your behaviors. And I'll say a bit more about that uh, in a moment. What's coming up next? OK, so ignore all the anatomical (coughs) detail here. Just consider that the brain is a multitude of parallel systems with different layers. Some of these have real incredible um, drives that you can't suppress them, like your heart rate. These are your basic bodily functions. Needing to go to the toilet, you know, if you need to go to the toilet, you can't stop yourself. Doesn't matter how much free will you think you have, your body will take over. So the idea that you can control everything is undermined by the sheer physiology that some things you can't control. But increasingly, as you move up the central system, you're you're, you're moving from levels of arousal, how wakefulness you are, how sleepy you are, drives and emotions, hunger, sex, whatever, uh, and higher order represent all the thought processes, um, and these are increasingly uh, coming under uh, these, are, these are all competing, and, 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 and regulating yourself is often you know, trying to uh, redress the imbalance that these things create. But I suppose what I'm saying is that you consider the, the central nervous system is just a multitude of parallel systems all competing for the action of the body and the brain and, and, and the thoughts. Okay, so so one of the areas, this is actually kind of controversial at the moment because some people are arguing whether or not this is scientifically valid, but ego depletion refers to the kind of marshmallow test thing I was talking about. Um, Roy Baumaster has argued that we have a limited capacity to suppress urges and impulses and that if you're put under very uh, difficult stressful situations you get compromised. So for example if you have a very difficult job interview or you've got to speak in public Uh, or you've got to take an exam. Uh, This requires a lot of effort. But that depletes your ego. It depletes your capacity to uh, ignore uh, subsequent temptation, which is why you go and stuff your face and drink more alcohol and eat a lot after you've been in a stressful situation. So that's one of the arguments, that firing people, doing difficult tasks, even just you know, not running out and screaming and when you want to go out and scream in a public place. You know that urge you sometimes get? Well, I don't know about you, but I get it all the time. That requires a degree of self-control uh, to suppress that. And there are people who don't have that. And have you ever wonder why, you know, alcohol is a depressant. It, it, de- it deactivates or it suppresses the ability of the frontal lobes to control or, uh, impulses, which is why you get hungry when you've been eating, why you become you know, your behavior becomes questionable. Because you're no longer keeping it under under control. Which brings me to some interesting, th- yes, yeah, so we all know who she is. Um, hands up if you know who she is. Oh my gosh, <laughs> all you animal lovers. Yes, this is Mary Bale. Um, some of you don't know who this lady was. This was an infamous case from about, it must be eight years ago now, I suppose. Um, she was a bank worker, very upper, uh, very um, What's the word up, up and the standi- upstanding member of society? Nothing to think that w- there was anything particularly wrong. But after this following incident, she was um, compared to Hitler. So, <laughs> literally, this is the footage from the outside the house. Now, she used to walk this path every day, and there would be this cat, and she would always stop to just to pet the cat. And on this particular day, you know, she just had this urge, this impulse, <laughs> to do something, and she picked up the, you know, the bin, opened it, and then. And dropped the cat in the bin. She didn't kill it, but that was bad enough to be compared to Hitler, apparently. Um, so, so, why am I showing you this? Well, because I think that's an example where, and I think we may have, I'm not getting anyone to admit it, but I think we've all done things which just seem so out of character with us. And, and we have to explain well, who is doing that? You know, clearly it doesn't fit with our self story. How can we reconcile this? Well, I think what you don't know about this situation is that, yes, she's a bank worker, but that journey she used to make every day was to see her dying father in the hospital. So she was under a hell of a lot of stress. And I think that's possibly what happened, that something came into her head. Normally the rest of us would just suppress and ignore it and move on, but somehow got the better of it and she did this. Is there any evidence for this? Okay, well, let's consider some more extreme cases. This is Charles Whitman? Uh, in 1966, he climbed the tower of uh, Austin, Texas, uh, the campus there, with a high-powered rifle and he shot dead 16 people. He was a mass murderer, a mass shooter. But what's fascinating about Charles, well, what's really intriguing about Charles Whitman is that he was aware something wasn't quite right in his behavior and he wrote a suicide note. And he said, I don't quite understand what uh, compels me to type this letter. Perhaps it's to leave some vague reason for the actions I've recently performed. I don't really understand myself these days. I'm supposed to be an average, reasonable, intelligent young man. However, lately, I can't recall when it started, I've been a victim of many unusual and irrational thoughts. These thoughts constantly recur, and it requires a tremendous mental effort to concentrate on useful and progressive tasks. After my death, I wish that an autopsy would be performed on me to see if there is any physical disorder. And guess what? There was. We had a tumor in the amygdala area, which is the area that suppresses aggression and rage and anger. Now, you might think, okay, well that's a bit anecdotal, and indeed we can maybe dismiss it as that. But then there have been other cases. There was a case 10 years ago of an individual, an adult, who um, developed an abnormal obsession with child pornography, and about before he was about to be sentenced, he developed a very severe headache. They took him into a casualty. They did a CAT scan on him and discovered a huge tumor in the frontal orbital area, again part of the circuitry, which controls these sexual urges, aggression, and impulses. It was retracted, taken out, and his behavior changed. He suddenly became a normal person again. Two years later, he started to develop an abnormal obsession with pornography again. They looked at the tumor. I looked at the a CAT scan again. The tumor had grown back. Now, my point is this. Who is responsible? Who's the self there? Is it the individual or is it the tumor? To what extent can you draw culpability here? To what extent can you point the finger and say? And these are things that we've got to question increasingly as we're understanding genetics. You know, there's a whole thing on warrior genes or whatever. You know, who is blameful? Who do we blame? The implication of saying the self is an illusion has real importance for how we think about uh, culpability and crime and punishment. I haven't got the answer, and I think maybe we can discuss that. So this idea that you're inside your head, you're controlling your machine, of course, is problematic. It's, even if I was to show you the neuroscience, you could imagine it's problematic for a very simple logical reason. Someone asked me earlier, it was a lady over here, about where do people think the consciousness is. Well, they've actually done a study, and they get people to sort of meditate and say, OK, I want you to try, if you can, do you feel a, an origin of self? And if so, where do you think it is? And could you point to it? And this is typically, and this is the actual data, this is where they think they are. They don't point to their buttocks. They don't point to their feet. They say, I feel I'm inside my head, somewhere behind my eyes. And I don't know about you, but that's my personal experience. I I think I'm somewhere in my head looking out. That's what I feel. But, of course, there can't be a little me inside my head driving this machine, because, obviously, if there was a little me inside my head, who's inside his head, and his head, and his head, and so on you get into an infinite regress. There cannot be a a loci, there cannot be an origin for the self because it sets up a logical impossibility. This is a more accurate neuropsychological picture of what's going on. Those of you who remember DC Thompson's, this is the numbskulls. There's not one homunculus. There's a multitude of independent things operating, competing, trying to do that, trying to take over. And if you disconnect them, you can see them operating differently. So for example, in the famous studies by these are just some of the pathways. Did someone say Sperry there? Split brain? Indeed, well done. Uh, this is a split brain experiment. This is from Roger Sperry and Gazzaniga's work. These are patients with intractable epilepsy. And What you can do is you can disconnect the two hemispheres from above the corpus callosum, cut it out. Um, information still comes up through the brain stem, but the crosstalk between the two hemispheres is lost. Why is that interesting? Well, you've effectively created two independent brains. So in these studies, they got them to fixate on a point, and then they presented information on the left side and the right side. Now, the information anatomically crosses over. So the word key is processed by the the right hemisphere, and the word ring is processed by the left hemisphere. They asked them to say what you see. Language is typically on the left hemisphere. So they would say the word ring. But then they asked them to pick up the object from the table. And because the left hand is controlled by the right side of the brain, they picked up the word corresponding to what they saw in the left field. Now what's interesting about this is that when they're presented with this inconsistency, the patients would confabulate some sort of explanation to make sense of it. Now that's the fascinating thing. It's this idea of trying to reconcile inconsistent information. This is the self again. This is this kind of amalgamation of all the information that's coming through. You don't have to be brain damaged. You can show the same effect in a th- phenomenon called choice blindness. So in these studies, there's a normal people that are asked to decide which female face do you prefer?" and point to it. They point to a face and then surreptitiously they're given the opposite face. Now if they don't notice that something has been switched, they will then go on to give a very full explanation lucidly by this person's the one they chose and they preferred right from the very beginning. <laughs> so consciousness is almost like a spin doctor of experience, as Pinker would say. Okay? You, you're making sense. The decisions are already happening unconsciously but consciousness allows you to kind of reconcile and pull this all together. And I think the best example of that is cognitive dissonance. This is what we do all the time. We walk around with an idolized notion, a narrative of who we are. And you know, I'm a good person, I'm a generous person, I've got a good sense of humor, and so on. But when we do things which are inconsistent with that, rather than saying, oh, I didn't want the job, or the, the, you know, rather than saying that maybe I was the person that was wrong in that relationship we actually point the finger at the other person and say, well, no, they, they were a jerk or whatever, because we have to retain this sense of identity, this self coherence. So cognitive dissonance is a good example of that. We all walk around with deceptions in our head. We think we've got above average intelligence, above average sense of humor, and many of us think we're above average beauty. Uh, but of course, these are just stories that we're telling ourselves to maintain our self esteem, to keep us happy. In many ways, depressives are said to be more accurate because they seem to have a better picture of what they're like, whereas we, on the other hand, have an optimism bias. Just assume that we're better than most. Okay, I'm going on here, and I've gone for about an hour. So you guys must be pretty exhausted. Um, I'll just finish off, and then we can take it from there. Is that okay? All right. So social psychology is another rich territory, which allows us to consider the extent to which our behaviors and thoughts are influenced by other people. Classic work. This is the the Solomon Asch. In these studies from the 50s, if you tell, if you have 10 people in a room and they've got to decide which line is longer than another, or which color is brighter, whatever, what you can do is you can choose two stimuli, which are clearly obviously different, but if 10 people say it's one that black is white, the real, the real participant is also likely to concur because rather than go against the crowd, they want to be seen as being compliant. Um, there's other examples. These are the Milgram experiments. They're controversial, I understand that, and they've been reinterpreted. But the point generally is that people behave in a way that they never imagined they would. When, they originally, when Milgram originally proposed this, psychiatrists said only 1% would ever do this. In fact, three-quarters of people will administer what effectively is a lethal level of um, uh, electrocution. So pressure to conform is, is a very real phenomenon. And, of course, we've seen this um, in real atrocities, this is Arab garb, this is the torture. Normal people behave very abnormally. Now, we could have a whole session on why that's the case, but I think it's true to say that we all walk around with an idolized notion of who we are, and sometimes we behave in ways which don't fit with this internalized notion of self. So, how is this going to, why is this interesting now? Well, just in the last minute or five minutes or two, I just want to talk about the, the role of communication and how it's been supercharged by the internet and the new social media. Uh, we are now engaging in self-activity which is unprecedented. We can communicate with thousands if not millions of people instantaneously across the planet. We can entertain lives. We can create alternative lives. Um, uh, This is the case of David Pollard and Amy Taylor from uh, the West Country where I am. This was a case which was phenomenal. There used to be a network, I'm not sure if it's still going, called Second Life, where you create an avatar of your idealized notion of who you are. So David created his character called Dave Barmy. He was a a nightclub in his life, sorry, in his avatar world. He was this nightclub owner, had a penchant for Italian suits, and he met Amy Taylor online who was a bit more into the country western. She called herself Laura Skye. And they, they set up a relationship, uh, emailing each other. And uh, they decided to meet in reality. And so they ended up meeting. And of course, there was a bit of a disconnect between who they really were <laughs> and their personalities. But what's really fascinating about this is that they met up and they ended up moving in together. Moved into uh, um, down in Cornwall, uh, to pull through to an area down there, to Newquay. And they, 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 they lived there. They were living together. Until, unfortunately, Amy came home one day to find that Dave was online having a virtual affair with another avatar. And then she sued for divorce on the grounds of, of, being, dis- you know, of being abandoned. And she said, what's worse is that it wasn't the fact that there was any real infidelity going on, it the fact it was a virtual infidelity that my, my imagined self was not good enough for him. And that's what she found more upsetting than the fact that in reality. So that's life imitating art imitating life which I find utterly fascinating. You can look it up, it's a fascinating case. We are connected, we're interconnected, homophily, we're birds of feather. You, you would think the internet and Twitter and this accessibility to thousands of opinions would make us more balanced and more um, moderate. No, no, there are enough idiots online, you can find your own weird group. And this leads to actually not uh, cohesion, it leads to further divisions as we become more and more ostracized, polarized, about our opinions. So the Internet does have some worrying concerns. We know about Facebook. You're all aware about that as well. I'm maybe not so worried as everyone is because I just assumed everyone knew what was going on with Facebook. But it is true that we are introducing and nobody is immune. Everybody wants to be valued. Everyone wants to have their opinions. There's 300 million photographs going up every day or so uh, of pictures of themselves. W- why do I need to think about it? Isn't the self not the most peculiar thing that you want to just kind of be visible and and why likes and dislikes are so important? I just think this, what's happened with the technologies is accelerated, it's amplified what is our natural inclinations and our preoccupation with self-esteem, our preoccupation with where we are. Now, this might be a Western phenomenon, more obvious in the West. We could maybe discuss that. But clearly, this is still a very uh, important preoccupation. So we set off in our lives. And we make choices, and we walk on yeah. paths, and we feel that ourself is the person being making the choices. What I'm trying to convey to you is that this individual doesn't really exist. Rather, we exist as all these paths. We are, we are the emergent property. That's what I'm trying to switch, the emphasis that there's this individual making the choices. In the same way as you can form a uh square, the context shapes who that self is. We are shaped by our politics, our religions, our families, our jobs, and all these experiences. But if you take them away, as in the case of incarceration, or maybe in the case of dementia, when people start to lose those parts of their identity, the person becomes a different person. Anyone who's known anyone with dementia will confirm they become literally a different person. And it's shocking to relatives, because they just can't understand where the person has gone. And so, without all that, your sense of identity is compromised. So to summarize, our brains process and stimulate the external environments in order to adapt to it by generating these models. I think we we model the outside world, but we model the internal world to create this caricature of who we are as a very convenient way of interacting with each other. Because we don't interact with multitudes, we have to interact as individuals. A coherent sense of self is really important to do that, because if you can't... Say who you are, and you're this multitude of people, then you're going to be considered duplicitous or, or a hypocrite or, or whatever. So, we, we kind of have to have this sense of who we are. We're constantly updating that narrative. And very often, when things don't fit with that narrative, we reconfigure it, we reframe it to make it to maintain this self coherence. And our sense of self develops over childhood, but continues, but largely influenced by those others' approval around us. That's a very powerful motivating factor. Donald Trump doesn't need any more money you know, um, Lord Sugar doesn't need any more money. Why do people who don't need to do, why? because they need to feel validated for who they are. And that requires the approval of others around us. just want to end with Bronnie Ware. Bronnie Ware is a palliative nurse. She wrote a book called The Regrets of the Dying. These are the five top regrets that people who are about to die. They had no reason to say otherwise. This is what they're lying on their deathbed. And she said, what, what's the biggest regret you've had in life? I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected me. I wish I hadn't uh, worked so hard. Okay, that's maybe not so relevant. I wish that I had the courage to express my feelings. I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. I wish I'd let myself be happier. So don't, be disapp- don't get um, disappointed not to, uh, or don't be depressed by the notion of the self being an illusion. I think it's much more liberating to consider the way that we are a product of all our interactions. So go forth and enjoy each other's company. Thanks.